Hey everyone, and welcome to Love, Life, and the Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode. I started this podcast because of my sons and the questions that they asked me and the profound conversations that ensued. I wanted to add to, I wanted to broaden their minds, and so I suggested that they read some of the books that I've read and that interest me. Well, that didn't quite work out as planned, so I came up with the idea of a podcast, reading the books that I love, the books that I've heard about, wanted to read, etc., etc. So here I am reading the books that I feel will inspire my sons, the rest of my children, you, and of course myself. If you have a suggestion, email me sorry, at chapterbychapter256 at gmail.com, and I'll put it on the reading list. This episode, we are reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. We are now on part four and um, I think actually this is like the second last part, not the last part, but it is the last part before the last words. So we're nearing the end of this book. But before we start reading this last chapter or part rather, let's get ourselves something to drink. Because I think that Having your favorite drink and reading a book is just an amazing thing to do. And I love to do that all the time. So here we go. Part four of Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. For a few years after Jonathan Seagull vanished from the beaches of the flock, it was the strangest bunch of birds that had ever lived on earth. Many of them had actually begun to understand the message he had brought and it was common to see a young gull flying upside down and practicing loops as it was to see an old one, unwilling to open his eyes to the glory of flying, boring straight and level out to the fishing boats, hoping for a supper of soggy bread. Fletcher Lynn Seagull and the other students of Jonathan spread their instructor's teaching of freedom and flight in long missionary journeys to every flock on the coastline. There There were remarkable events in those days. Fletcher's own students and students of their students were flying with precision and a kind of joy that had never been seen before. Here and there were individual birds who flew acrobatics as they practiced, better than Fletcher, sometimes even better than Jonathan himself had flown them. The learning curve of a highly motivated gull goes on steeply, excuse me, goes on steeply off the top of any graph. And now and then there were students who overcame limits so perfectly that they disappeared, as Jonathan had from the face of the earth too limited to contain them. It was a golden age for a while. Crowds of gulls elbowed in upon Fletcher to touch the one who had touched Jonathan Seagull, a bird they now considered divine. In vain did Fletcher insist that Jonathan had been a a gull like them all, who had learned all they could, had learned as they all could learn. They were after him constantly to hear Jonathan's exact words, his precision gestures, to find tiny details about him. The more they begged for trivia, the more uneasy grew Fletcher Gull. When once they had been interested in practicing the message, training and flying fast and free and glorious in the sky, now they began to slack away from difficult work and became ever so slightly wild-eyed over legends of Jonathan as though he were the idol of a fan club. Gull Fletcher, they asked, did the magnificent Jonathan say we are in truth the ideas of the great Gull, or was it we are in fact the ideas of the great Gull? Please, Call me Fletcher, just Fletcher Seagull, he would reply, appalled that they would use a term of reverence upon him. And what difference does it make, which word he used? Both are correct. We are ideas of the great Gaul, 
but he knew they were not satisfied with his answer. They thought he had dodged their question. Gull Fletcher, when the divine Gull Jonathan rose to fly, did he move one step toward the wind or two? Before he could correct the one question, another was fired. Gull Fletcher, did the sacred Gull Jonathan have gray eyes or golden eyes? The question of the bird with gray eyes was in anguish for one answer only. I don't know. Forget his eyes. He had. he had purple eyes. How can that matter? What he came to tell us was that we can fly. If we would just wake up and stop standing around on the beach, talking about the color of somebody's eyes. Now watch, and I'll show you a pinwheel turn. But more than one gull, finding it weary to practice something as difficult as a pinwheel, flew home musing. The great gull, the great one, had purple eyes. Not like my eyes. Not like the eyes of any gull that have ever lived. The classes changed with years, from wide-sewing poems in flight to hushed talk about Jonathan before and after practice, to long-involved resuscitations on the sand about the Divine One, with no flying ever done by anybody. Fletcher and the other students of Jonathan were at turns puzzled and correctful and firm and furious at the change, but they were helpless to stop it. They were honored and worse, revered, but they were no longer heard, and the birds who practiced flying were fewer and fewer. One by one, the original students passed away, leaving cold, dead bodies behind them. The flock seizing upon the bodies held, held great tearful ceremonies over them, burying them under enormous cairns of pebbles, each pebble laid in place after a long, soaring sermon by a solemnly solemn bird, sorry, by a deadly solemn bird. The cairns became shrines, and it was acquired ritual for every gull who wished oneness to drop a pebble and a doleful speech upon the cairn. No one knew what oneness was, but it was such a deep, serious—it was such a serious, deep thing that a gull could never ask without being thought a fool. Why everybody knows what oneness is, and the prettier the pebble you drop on the on Gull Martin's tomb, the better your chance of getting there. Fletcher passed away last of all. It happened during a long, lonely session of the purest and most beautiful flying he had ever done. His body vanished in the midst of a long, vertical, slow roll, something he had practiced since he first met Jonathan Seagull. And when he vanished, he was not setting pebbles or meditating over slogans of oneness. He was lost in the perfection of his own flight. When Fletcher didn't show up on the beach in the next week, when he vanished without leaving a note, the flock was in brief consternation. But then they gathered together in thought and decided what must have happened. It was announced that Gall Fletcher had been seen, surrounded by the other seven first students, standing on what would henceforth be known as the Rock of Oneness. And then the clouds had parted, and the great Gull Jonathan Livingston Seagull himself, clad in royal plumes and golden shells, with a crown of precious pebbles upon his brow, pointing symbolically, symbolically to the sky, and sea and wind and earth, had called him up to the beach of oneness, and Fletcher had magically risen, surrounded by holy rays, and the clouds had closed again over the scene to a great chorus of gull voices singing. And so the piles of pebbles on the rock of oneness and sacred memory of Gall Fletcher was the biggest pile of pebbles on any coastline anywhere on earth. Other piles were built everywhere in replica, and each Tuesday afternoon the flock walked over to stand around the pebbles and hear the miracles of Jonathan Livingston Seagull and his gifted divine students. Nobody did any more flying than that was absolutely necessary, and when it was necessary they grew strange customs about it. As a kind of status symbol, the more affluent birds began carrying branches from trees in their beaks. 
The heavier, sorry, the larger and heavier the branch a gull carried, the more attention he earned in the flock. The larger the branch, the more progressive a flyer he was considered. A few in Gaul society noticed that by carrying the weight and drag of the branches around with them, the most faithful seagulls became disturbing flyers. The symbol for Jonathan's teaching became a smooth pebble. Then later any old rock would do. It was the worst possible symbol for a bird who had come to teach the joy of flight, but nobody seemed to notice, at least nobody who mattered on the flock. On Tuesdays all flying stopped and a listless crowd gathered to stand and hear the official flock recite sorry, official flock student recite. In a matter of only a few years, the resuscitation stratified and hardened into a granite dogma. Ho, Jonathan, Galak, great gull, Galak, Onek, have pity on we who are lower than sand fleas. On and on for hours come Tuesday. It was a mark of excellence for the official to run the sound together rapid fire so they couldn't be recognized as words at all. A few insolent birds whispered that the sound meant nothing anyway, even if one could figure out that there was in fact a word or two buried within it. Images of Jonathan pecked from sandstone, set with great sad purple shell eyes, sprung up all along the coastline, at every kern and replica kern, centers to a worship, heavier than heavier even than rocks could symbolize. In less than two hundred years, nearly every element of Jonathan's teaching was taken out of daily practice by the simple pronouncement that it was holy, and beyond the aspiration of common gulls, lower than sand fleas. In time, the rites and ceremonies that were planted around the name of Jonathan Seagull became obsessive. Any thinking gull altered course in the air so as not to even fly in the sight of the kerns. Built as they were on the ceremony and superstition of those who preferred excuses for failure instead of hard work and great and greatness, the thinking gull, gulls paradoxically closed their minds at the sound of certain words: flight, kern, great gull, Jonathan. On all other matters, they were the most lucid, honest birds since Jonathan himself. But at the mention of his name or any of the other terms so badly mauled by the official local students, their minds snapped shut with the sound of trapping doors closing. Because they were curious, they began experimenting with flight, though they never used that word. It's not flight, they'd assured themselves over and over. It's just a way of finding what's true. So in rejecting the students, they became students themselves. In rejecting the name of Jonathan Seagull, they practiced the message he had brought to the flock. There was no noisy revolution, there was no shouting, no waving of banners, but individuals like Anthony Seagull, for instance, not fully grown into the feathers of adulthood, began asking questions. Now look, he told his official local student, the birds who come to hear you every Tuesday come for three reasons, don't they? Because they think they're learning something because they think that putting another pebble on the kern is going to make them holy, or because everybody else expects them to be there, right? And you have nothing to learn, my nestling? No, there's something to learn, but I don't know what it is. A million pebbles can't make me holy if I don't deserve it, and I don't care what the other gulls think about me. And what is your answer, nestling? Nestle, nestling, ever so slightly shaken by this heresy? How do you call the miracle of life? The great gull Jonathan, holy be his name, said that flight, life isn't a miracle, official, it's a bore. Your great gull Jonathan is a myth somebody made up a long time ago, a fairy tale that the weak believe because they can't stand to face the world as it is, 
Imagine, a gull who could fly 200 miles per hour? I've tried it, and the fastest I can go is 50, diving, and even then I'm mostly out of control. There are laws of flight that cannot be broken, and if you think so, you go out there and try it. Do you honestly believe truly now that your great Jonathan Seagull flew 200 miles per hour? And faster, the official said in perfect blind faith, and taught others to do so. So goes your fairy tale. But when you show me that you can fly that fast, official, then I'll begin listening to what you have to say. There was the key, and Anthony Seagull knew it, in the instant he said the words. He didn't have answers, but he knew that he would gratefully, gladly, lay down his life to follow any bird who could demonstrate what he was talking about. Show him just a few answers in life that worked, that brought excellence and joy into everyday living. Until he found that bird, life would remain gray and bleak, illogical, without purpose. Every seagull would remain a coincidental collection of blood and feathers pointed toward oblivion. Anthony Seagull went his own way, as did more and more other young birds, rejecting the ritual and ceremony that encrusted the name of Jonathan Seagull, sad at the futility of life, but at least honest with themselves, brave enough to face the fact that it was futile. Then one afternoon, Anthony was flapping along, above the sea, thinking blankly that life is pointless, and since pointless by, is by definition meaningless, then the only proper act is to dive down into the ocean and drown. Better not to exist at all than to exist like a seaweed without meaning or joy. It all made sense. It was pure logic, and Anthony Seagull had tried all his life. Sorry. And Anthony Seagull had all his life tried to abide by honesty and logic. He had to die sooner or later anyway, and he saw no reason to prolong the painful boredom of living. So he pushed over from 2,000 feet into a dive straight toward the water. Coming down at nearly 50 miles per hour, it was oddly exhilarating to have made the decision at last. He had found the one answer that made any sense at all. About Along about midway into his death dive, with the sea tilting and growing huge beneath him, there was a great whistling roar directly past his right wing, and he was passed in flight by another seagull. Passed as though he had been standing on the beach. The other bird was a white streak blazing down, a blurred meteor from space. Anthony startled, bent his wings into dive breaks, and wandered helplessly at the sight. Oh, sorry, wondered helplessly at the sight. The bird dwindled softly toward the sea, flashing down at the wave tops, and then bent into a hard pull-up, beak pointing straight back up into the sky, and rolled. A long, vertical, slow roll, twisting into an almost into an impossible full circle in the air. Anthony stalled, watching, forgetting where he was, stalled again. I swear, he said out loud, I swear that was a seagull. He turned at once toward the other bird, who apparently hadn't noticed him. Hey, he called as loud as he could. Hey, wait up. The gull pitched immediately up on one wing, moving at tremendous speed, blazed back toward him. Anthony, in level flight, pulled hard into a vertical bank and stopped suddenly in the air. As a, racing, as a racing skier stops at the top of a downhill run. Hey, Anthony was all out of breath. What, what are you doing? It was a silly question, but he didn't know what else to say. I'm sorry if I startled you, the stranger said in a voice as clear and friendly as the wind. I had you in sight all the time, just playing. I wouldn't have hit you. No, no, that's not it, Anthony was awake and alive for the first time in his life, inspired. What was that? Oh, some fun flying, I guess. 
a dive and a pull-up to a slow roll with a rolling loop off the top. Just messing around. If we really want to do it, well, it takes a bit of practice. But it's a nice-looking thing, don't you think? It's... it's... beautiful, is what it is. But you haven't been around the flock at all. Who are you, anyway? You can call me John. And that is the end of part four, and therefore the end of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. There is also a next part called Last Words, the last chapter. So I am going to read that before we end today. Here we go. The last chapter is not an amazing story, though it feels like it. How do adventures suddenly appear in one's mind? Writers who love their work say that the mystery is a part of the magic. No explanation. Imagination is an old soul. Someone whispers in the spirit, speaks softly of a bright world, and the creatures there with joys and sorrows and despairs and victories. The tale finished and beautiful except for the words. Writers swirl images to match the eye, sorry, the action they see. Remember the dialogue from beginning to the end. Simply insert letters, periods, and commas, and the story is ready to ski down the slopes of booksellers. Stories are wrought not with communities and grammar. They spring from a mystery that touches your own silent imagination. Question hold us, questions hold us puzzled for years. Then a storm of answers comes sudden from the unknown, arrows from a bow we've never seen. So it was for me. When I stopped writing the fourth part, the story of Jonathan Seagull was done. I read the fourth part over and over again at the time. It would never be true. Would the seagulls who follow Jonathan's answers kill the spirit of flight with ritual? That chapter said it could be. I didn't believe it. Three parts told the whole of it, I thought. Doesn't need a fourth. A desert sky, dusty words to smother joy, almost. It doesn't need to be printed. So why didn't I burn it? Don't know. I put it away. The last part of the book believed in itself when I didn't. It knew what I refused. The forces of rulers and rituals slowly, slowly would kill our freedom to live as we choose. All that time passed, half a century, forgotten. Sabrina found the story not long ago, ragged and faded, squashed under useless business papers. Do you remember this? Remember what I said? No. I read some paragraphs. Oh, I remember, sort of. This was... Read it. A smile for the antique manuscript she'd found, which had touched her. The typewriter's letters were faded. The language was an echo of mine, though way back then a sense of what I was. It was not my writing. It was his writing. The kid from then. The manuscript ended and filled me with his warning and hope. I knew what I was doing, he said. In your 21st century, hemmed about with authority and ritual, it's strapped now to strangle freedom. Don't you see? It's planning to make your world safe, not free. He lived his story, last chance. My time's gone, yours isn't. I thought about his voice again, the last chapter. Are we seagulls looking at the end of freedom in our world? Part 4, printed at last, where it belongs, says maybe not. It was written when nobody knew the future. Now we do. And that ending is signed by Richard Bach, spring 2013. And that brings us to the end of Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. I really actually love that book, and I really love what it represents and what it means, and just what he discussed, discussed in the end there, that humanity forgets why we do the things that we do, and get, things get lost in ritual and and force and understandings that 
no longer the sorry understandings that lose the meaning of what we were doing in the first place i really trust that in our new world we can remain authentic and our experiences can continue to be authentic because we can hopefully document them differently than those things of the past that unfortunately are left for interpretation but then again everything is left to interpretation so who really knows what's going to happen but i trust that this technology that we have will be used for something else and maybe it's to preserve the understanding so that humanity can learn can evolve and become more than it is today but that is um partially how i feel about this book and what this book really means to me it's a really amazing book i'm so grateful that you guys all read this book with me I, as i tell you all the time you can go to chapter by chapter 256 on um, Instagram or Atmos Felicia J. Let me know how you feel about this book. Give me a comment, like, share, follow, and subscribe, please. Um, tell everyone you know that you know about this book and about listening to my podcast, and we can read it together whenever you like because you can go back and look. Um, I trust that reading this book with me has broadened your mind, that this book has inspired your thoughts or a conversation. Maybe it's changed your world or entertained you. Whatever it's done for you, I trust that it serves you. And remember, everyone, that your flame, your fire, will always burn. Lighting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will only create a larger fire. I have so enjoyed reading Jonathan Livingston's Seagull with you. And because it's over, next week it's going to be a new book. book. And this book is called 50 Truths Worth Knowing. I really enjoyed this book. I read only a small amount of this book before. Um, but I've heard so many great things about it. So 50 Truths Worth Knowing will be what we'll be reading next week. Um, thank you so much, all all of you, for tuning in. As I said, like, share, subscribe, follow. Check me out at Chapter by Chapter 256 on Instagram or at Miss Felicia J on Instagram. Coming soon will be my YouTube channel, but that's something we'll talk about next week or the week after. I want all of you guys to have a fantastic day. Have a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, be well.